Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Medicine Hat in Alberta is one of the sunniest cities in Canada, but it seems not all its residents have a sunny disposition. Evil resides even in small and beautiful places. The Hat, as it's called, is located along the South Saskatchewan River and is known for its round reddish sandstone formations. These rock-type boulders can reach as big as 10 feet across and are spread out across the landscape, making it appear like a scene out of a science fiction movie. Recently, the hat has become known for the unusual murder of a stranger that all started when Robert Hoofman, who at 55 years of age, decided that the way to improve his financial means was to extort money from the rich. In the fall of 2017, he used his home computer to type a letter to another resident in Medicine Hat. A publication ban protects the name and privacy of his target. The Chat News Today reported that in his letter, Robert threatened his target, their spouse, and everyone close to them, and warned that they were being closely watched. He declared that dozens would die if he did not receive a million dollars. A quote from his letter stated, We are ready to kill any one of them, so my advice to you is pay attention and do as you are told, or my guys will go in for the kill. Here is the game, and if you play without cheating, you win. On the other hand, cheat and we promise you that your spouse and a lot of other innocent people close to you, or perhaps you may not even know them, will die. He went on to write, So just hearing that an individual was brutally murdered on the radio should be enough. That kill will be free, and we will not put your name on that body. Our gift to you. On the morning of Tuesday, October 10th, not far from his home, He delivered it to his target's place of work and taped it to the door. An employee discovered the letter, removed it, and took it inside and placed it on the target's desk. The target read the letter. He had recently experienced a falling out with a business partner over some financial and professional issues and thought that they may have written the letter, so he contacted the Medicine Hat Police. That evening, in another part of town, Darla Dolan and her husband Joseph were out walking their dog. The Lethbridge News Now reported that they saw their neighbor James Satry working outside in his yard. Then Darla noticed a man watching James. The stranger wore dark sunglasses and a hood pulled up that hid his face. He gave her a bad feeling and she sensed something wasn't quite right. 
Darla and Joseph continued on their walk, and on their way back, struck up a conversation with James. He was excited about a trip he had planned to visit his nephews. The couple then returned home and went to bed around 9 o'clock. Not long after, Robert decided to follow through with a threat in his extortion plan. At random, he chose a perfect stranger to murder. This was sent a message to his target that he was serious. Robert spotted James working out in his yard and with no one around, walked up to him. I wonder if he nodded his head or said hello before plunging a knife into his chest. James was taken by surprise. His blood splattered from his chest and spots landed on Robert's glasses, which were then knocked off his face and landed on the ground. Robert sped out of there, leaving tire tracks not far from where James's body now lay. Around 7.30 a.m., Joseph left the house to take their dog, Cashmere, for a walk. Joseph had been blind for the last 17 years. The Medicine Hat News reported that his 15-pound, two-year-old red healer was pulling Joseph and wouldn't stop. It was unusual. She just wouldn't let up and kept pulling and pulling him into the alleyway of a neighbor's home. Joseph thought there appeared to be a log on the ground. He bent down and realized it wasn't a log. It was a body. He checked for a pulse and felt the person's stomach to see if they were breathing and felt a sticky substance on his hand. He found no signs of life. Joseph feared it might be his neighbor James laying there and called for an ambulance. When police and emergency services arrived at 7.39 a.m., they saw James laying in a pool of blood. He was wearing a jean jacket, blue jeans, and beige work gloves. His body was cold and stiff. James was dead at 63. Police entered James's home and found his cell phone and cash on the kitchen table. The home was tidy and there were no signs of violence. Police canvassed the neighborhood and six doors down discovered a tow truck driver who had a dash cam in his truck. The video confirmed exactly what Joseph had described, his walk with Kashmir and finding James's body. An autopsy confirmed that James had died from a stab wound to his chest and it was ruled a homicide. The first murder in Medicine Hat in seven years. Police publicly called the murder a cowardly act. Now, within 24 hours, police in this small town had two independent investigations for extortion and murder. At this point, they had no idea that the two cases were linked. Police reached out for help on the case to a forensic specialist with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Ontario and an FBI agent in Phoenix familiar with extortion cases. Robert continued with his plan. He didn't know that his target, who feared for their safety, had been advised by the police to leave town. Meanwhile, police were investigating the target's business associate, 
They had them under surveillance and placed tracking devices on their vehicles. Robert created an elaborate trail of letters with instructions for his target on where to drop off a duffel bag with the million dollars. He typed three letters, each with specific instructions that would lead to the next letter. He laid out the dates that each step was to be carried out, then placed each letter in a public place. But the police didn't wait to carry out the instructions on the dates specified in the letters. They immediately began searching for them. The first letter was found at a Husky gas station, under a concrete slab by the flagpole. That letter instructed the target to go to a pedestrian bridge near St. Mary's School. The letter warned the target that if they were seen talking on the phone or using GPS while driving, that an additional three people would be killed for every error the target made. At the bridge, the third letter instructed the target to an area next to a municipal building and that the bag with the money was to be dropped off near a water gate off the trail below College Drive. Four days after James's murder, police placed three surveillance cameras along the path that the letters instructed the target to follow, and another two cameras at the target's workplace. They kept the original three letters and replaced them with copies. Four police snipers in camouflage were placed strategically along the trail from College Drive to Kipling Street, leading up to the drop-off point. On October 16th, an undercover police officer posed as the target, and as the letter instructed, dropped off a duffel bag with the money at the designated spot. Inside the duffel bag, police had placed a motion detector and GPS tracker. Undercover officers hid nearby and waited. But after two days when no one showed up to pick up the duffel bag, officers moved it closer to the water gate and left the area. They would wait for the signal from the motion detector in the bag. Police now realized that their extortion and murder cases were connected and merged their investigations into one. Eight days after the murder, Robert took a stroll in the afternoon down the trail along College Drive. He walked with a cane, and when he spotted the duffel bag, used his cane to poke it. He nervously looked around, then decided against picking up the bag. He turned and headed back up the trail. Police had been immediately notified when motion had been detected in the bag, and two officers raced to the drop-off spot. The Calgary Herald reported that at the same time, Sergeant Jeffrey Click received a text message containing a photo captured by the trail camera and raced to the scene as well. Near the entrance to the trail, he spotted Robert with binoculars hanging around his neck and carrying a cane. He was walking with a purpose, so Sergeant Click followed him. It wasn't too far before Robert approached his mother-in-law's home and sat down on a step outside. The sergeant approached him and had a brief conversation with both him and his mother-in-law, in which Robert admitted to coming across to beg and that he poked it. But at that point, police didn't suspect Robert 
He was merely an innocent party out for a walk. The two officers who arrived at the water gate saw that the duffel bag was missing. They searched for 20 minutes when something caught their eye. 65 feet from the drop-off point, they spotted the duffel bag, submerged in the marsh and covered in leaves. They hauled it out, unzipped it, and discovered the plastic bags containing the money were still there. Robert was frustrated that his target had contacted police and that he couldn't collect the cash. So on October 23rd, he sent an angry letter to the editor at the Medicine Hat News. He blamed his target for Jane's death, and he mocked the police in their attempt at an undercover operation. Again, he warned that there would be more murders, and that they could happen next year, two years from now, or all in the same week. He stated that his target now knew who one of the 44 victims is going to be. As for the rest of the 43, we give our sympathies in advance to the families. The Hat townspeople lived in fear. Who would be next? They had no way of knowing who, when, or where. Robert decided to try for the money again. He typed up a second letter to his target and stated that he was giving them a second chance. On November 7th, he trudged to the snow and again delivered a letter to his target's workplace. Police arrived and noticed a fresh footprint in the snow and sprayed a red-colored wax on it to preserve it. Later that day, Robert took another walk by his target's workplace, just as Sergeant Kurt Murray was arriving. The sergeant recognized Robert as the man on the trail camera a few weeks earlier and followed him, noticing that he was leaving footprints in the snow. Then Robert stopped and paused. The red wax police had sprayed on the footprint earlier seemed to catch his attention. Then he carried on. The sergeant eventually lost sight of Robert, but not before he took photos of Robert's footprints in the snow. The two sets of footprints turned out to be a perfect match. Now, police suspected Robert in both the extortion and James's death. The next day, it had been almost a month since James's murder. That evening, police arrested Robert for extortion and murder. A search warrant was issued for Robert's home, and over the next three days, over two dozen items were seized including a spotting scope, binoculars, notebooks, envelopes and paper, latex gloves, a laptop with five USB drives, a paper shredder attached to a waste bin, and clothing including a jacket and shoes. The Medicine Hat Police Services Forensic Identification Unit processed the evidence for blood and DNA. Robert's Nike Air Monarch shoes that were seized turned out to be a match to the ones in the snow. Police learned from Robert's mother-in-law that he'd lost his glasses. That was the first time they heard that he wore glasses. The officers remembered the pair that had been found at the crime scene. The glasses were sent for DNA testing and taken to a local optometrist who confirmed 
that the prescription was the same as Robert's. Sergeant Tim Schotner performed digital forensic searches on Robert's laptop and the USB drives and discovered words that were identical to what had appeared in the extortion letters. He also discovered internet searches for the weight of cash and the anatomy of the body, including major arteries. In the waistband attached to the shredder, police removed the bits of paper and painstakingly put them back together. Staring back at them were the words from the November 7th extortion letter. Forensic testing on two of the letters and envelopes used in the extortion attempt contained Robert's DNA. And on his glasses found at the murder scene, his DNA was present on the bridge and arms, and James's DNA in the blood splatter. Forensic testing of the clothing found blood on a jacket and hooded sweater that belonged to both James and Robert. On March 1, 2021, the trial against Robert got underway in a Medicine Hat courtroom. Robert's mother-in-law and daughter testified to him losing his glasses, but they couldn't be sure exactly when it happened. They said that he was familiar with the trail that ran from College Drive to Kipling Street near his mother-in-law's house. They also testified at the time of the murder, Robert had been suffering from a breakdown and was physically unwell. The prosecution presented numerous pieces of DNA evidence that pointed to Robert. An RCMP DNA expert testified that the DNA was a quadrillions to one match. Robert's lawyers presented no evidence in his defense, nor any witnesses, but rather questioned the police on their evidence collection techniques and pointed out that the sticks used to test for bloodstains had expired. After three and a half weeks of testimony, the prosecution and defense rested their cases. The jury took less than six hours to render their verdict. On the morning of March 25th, Robert was found guilty of first-degree murder and extortion. He hung his head and rubbed his eyes. CBC News reported that in the afternoon, Robert took the stand in the prisoner's box to hear the judge hand down his sentence. James's sister read a victim impact statement and said that her heart was broken. She lost her brother and her best friend, that he was the only one who went to her house to visit her, and that she is isolated now. When the judge announced his sentence to Robert, he swayed in the prisoner's box, fainted, and fell out of the box. The court sheriffs caught him, and his family begged for him to open his eyes and sit up. Well, Robert did open his eyes, and is now serving a life sentence in a federal prison, with no chance of parole for 25 years, plus a concurrent five-year jail term for extortion. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20, with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Annie Lay, who was vivacious and brilliant when she went missing at the university 
no one would have guessed, her lifeless body lay inside its walls. High-tech campus security narrowed down the suspects. The killer was among them. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>